lifetime. Once when I was a kid, I had a bike stolen, and it is lopsided. Man, I want to look over here at somebody, and there's nobody there. There's only Tim back there. But, um, but uh, you know, I saw it on, parked on a kid's uh, driveway a week later, and my mom and I went over and drove over there. I stayed in the car, and my mom went up there and said, that is my son's bicycle, and we took it back. And uh, <laughs> the second time <coughs> was when I was an adult. I had just bought a... Uh, a cool, really black with red rim things, that, you know, from the shore, like a, a beach bike. Brought it home, had it in my garage. My next door neighbor went to 6'8 at the time, and he saw some guy walk up my driveway, get the bike out of my, my garage, <laughs> and walk it down the driveway. And he figured, well, Jason's a pastor. It's probably somebody from the church borrowing his bike. And then the later that afternoon, my wife saw it some guy riding it down the street. She goes, wow, hmm, that looks like Jason's bike because it was very unique looking, but she just kept driving. <laughs> so, um, so we figured out it was a sort of a, a theft ring, and we never got my bike back, but um, I felt kind of violated. And I remembered one other story. When we bought our house in 2019, we had a peach tree in the backyard, and it was laden with peaches that were just going to be ripe, and we were going away for a week before we moved in. And we were so excited to get back and eat those peaches. And we, we pulled up in the driveway from our vacation. We go to the backyard, and every single peach was gone. I mean, somebody had to get a very tall ladder to pick every peach. And bushels and bushels of peaches. There was thousands of peaches on that tree. And they were all gone. And uh, it was kind of nerve-wracking, you know. Like, you know, you feel sort of violated. You feel sort of dirty, like somebody's invaded your space. They're... You know, they've taken advantage of you. It's not, it's not a nice feeling, right? And, I, you know, the, the first kid just saw my bike, and he wanted it, so he took it. Whoever it was that took my peaches, saw my peaches and took them, and that was it. And the second guy was doing it, you know, when he stole my other bike, was doing it for money. You know, but o- both of those reasons are out of sheer selfishness, aren't they, really? You know, in Hugo's classic... Uh, Les Miserables, right? Jean Valjean steals this silver, these silver plates from the bishop, Monsignor Bienvenu, if I say his name correctly. And Valjean is stopped by the police. He's caught with this stuff. And when they, they, uh, they take him back to, the, to the, the, the bishop's residence, and instead of pressing charges, the bishop demonstrates amazing grace to this thief, Right? offering Valjean the silver candlesticks as well, uh, in, in addition to the plates that he stole. And the bishop claims to the police, oh, this is all really a gift, when it wasn't. Valjean had stolen it. And the law was definitely in the bishop's favor at that point, right? Yet grace guides the bishop's actions, his response. And at the close of the chapter, the bishop explains his actions to Valjean Uh, And he says to him, don't forget, don't ever forget that you promised me to use this silver to make an honest man of yourself. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong, you belong, if you've ever seen the movie, it is very moving. You belong uh, no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I am taking it away from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition. And I am giving it to God. Now, obviously, he's not buying it with the silver, but he's buying it with this act of grace, right? And the rest of the story uh, beautifully demonstrates how Valjean sort of embodies this grace that he's experienced that has been shown to him by pursuing a life 
obedient to God in love, in service towards others, right? He really takes care of people. He does a lot of good things. And so this act of grace, this beautiful picture of unmerited favor, of being blessed when it's not deserved at all, right? And that gives us insight into this next commandment in the series, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Uh, And like all the others recently, it's sort of like, seems very simple, doesn't it? That God doesn't want us to steal anything from anyone, and that's true. Yet instead of viewing this commandment in the negative, right, let's see it in the positive. God's desire for us to work for good, the good of others, right? Theft is a sin. It takes many forms, right? From simple everyday theft like my bike, my peaches, (laughs) you know, taking something which isn't yours, just plainly that is a sin. Whether it's a dollar when you're a kid or a candy bar at the store when you're a kid or it's $250,000 of PPP money which a restaurant owner just here in Bryn Mawr took, and now he's in jail. Uh, it's a sin, right? Plagiarism, the theft of thought, which can range from the easy fix on a college research paper found online late at night, right, the more, uh, to the more atten- uh, attention-grabbing sort of headlines of artists or reporters or musicians accused of stealing uh, w- the work of someone else like certain politicians using old speeches of somebody else and then claiming that to be their words, or musician Ed Sheeran uh, has been sued for plagiarism numerous times. Uh, I worry about plagiarism being up here because I do quote a lot of people, and I don't always say it, but I do put it in my sermons. Uh, you know, you don't, sometimes the line is difficult, right? Um, but th- theft of any kind is a sin. It's just a sin. There was a man who lived across the street from an abandoned house. And every spring, these daffodils and and tulips would bloom in this overgrown, abandoned yard. And every spring, the guy would think about digging them up and moving them to his yard because he loved flowers. And one year after watching these flowers grow, he thought, oh, this is such a waste. I'm going to dig them up, you know. After all, what's the big harm, you know? Like, there's nobody there. What, What could it hurt? The home's abandoned. And so that night at dusk, he got a shovel and, you know, a bucket and all that kind of stuff, and he walks over to this abandoned home, and he starts to uh, figure out which flowers he's going to dig up. And then at the last moment, his eye is drawn back to his own house across the street where this one flower in his yard is, is blooming. And that flower came with the house, right? He didn't plant it, and, and, and he remembered the joy of moving in and discovering that that thing was buried underneath the earth and it sprouted up in the spring after he had moved in. And he realized that despite all his attempts to justify transplanting flowers from an abandoned yard, that he was robbing the next homeowner of the joy that he would experience that first spring. So the commandment to not steal moves beyond simply taking objects or ideas and even into the realm of robbing others of joy. Right, But what if God's commandment of not to steal meant even more? What if, like the other past few commandments, it was also a commandment to do good, right? The Heidelberg Catechism asked the question, what does God require in this commandment? And the answer that they give is that I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good, that I treat others I would, as I would like them to treat me, 
and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. So instead of thinking of the Ten Commandments in terms of what we're not allowed to do, like the constant negative don't, right? Try to think of them in the words of the catechism. What does God require of us? What is consistent with his character, right? It isn't that God requires that we simply not steal, but that we actively work for our neighbor's good, for others' good, right? And this is what Jesus advocates in his Sermon on the Mount. He gives us this command, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Right? Don't refuse, right? Give to them. There are no conditions here which we might allow us, you know, allow us to wiggle out of this command at all. There are no qualifiers, like unless they've asked you several times before or like maybe they're lazy, right? It's very simple. Give if you're asked. That's a hard one. It is really a hard one. What's, what Jesus is describing here and what God requires in this commandment is selflessness, the opposite of selfishness, which really defines this and the past two commandments. Because if you think about it, the root of murder and adultery and theft are all selfishness, right? See, you see something, whether it's a person, whether it's an object, you want it, suddenly you don't care about what's right or wrong. Murder involves a clash of wills, doesn't it? And your will is right in your eyes. You're the sole interpreter of right and wrong. And if that means somebody else has got to die for the sake of your will, so be it. But love doesn't demand its own way, does it? But murderers demand their own way. Adulterers demand their own way. Thieves demand their own way. Jesus says we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we're seeing a pattern in his sort of directives in life here. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount in which we find that verse, Jesus teaches the principle that Christian kindness should transcend even straightforward tit-for-tat sort of retribution. In light of prevailing ethical thought, Jesus contrasts radically with, the, with most of other, other people of his day, maybe everybody of his day, stressing the need to decisively break the natural chain of evil action and reaction that characterizes human relationships. Because if we allow ourselves, we just cycle through this garbage, don't we? The Christian, in other words, arrests the process of evil and hatred by their own thoughts, then by their own actions and by their own response to the world around them. They are salt and light, which is they are preservative and guide, aren't they? And we see that the bishop in Les Miserables arrested that process by a kind act. Becoming an agent of change is not holding on to belonging so tightly, rather in loving those who stole from him. The teachings of Christ and the rest of the New Testament fly so directly in the face of human self-preservation, don't they? They really do, if you think about it. They are hard teachings, like in John 6 when they said, you know, I, who, can, who can do this? This is hard teaching, right? Teachings such as 1 Corinthians 6, 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Now listen to this. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because in America, we're taught that our rights are number one. The scriptures dictate a life of walking with Christ in which we struggle. We really do struggle with some of the things that Christianity calls us into. That love actually trumps my rights. That I'm called to actually suffer for Christ and to suffer for others. That Christ's name and people around me are more important than my bank account and my wallet and and my house and my car or even my own well-being. Each of Jesus' commands requires Jesus' followers to act more generously than what the letter of the law demanded. That's crazy. That's hard. So go the extra mile has rightly become sort of the proverbial expression of life and captures the essence of all his illustrations, doesn't it? Not only must his disciples reject all behavior that is motivated only by a desire for retaliation, but they also must positively work for the good of those whom they would otherwise be at odds, their enemy. So Jesus fulfills the Torah by interpreting it rightly and living it absolutely completely, right? And he calls his followers to live out a covenant loyalty in line with the values that are also expressed in the Torah. Now the law implies legalism, doesn't it? And exists only to provide the counterpoint to God's grace and forgiveness. In other words, the law is there to reveal sin in us, reveal our need, and reveal our need for grace and mercy in life, which God extends to us, but we should also extend to others. We would do well to remember the Old Testament affirms the goodness of the law. Psalms 119, 9 through 16 clearly says that. And that within the law itself, a means of forgiveness is provided in the sacrificial system. We see that in Leviticus chapter 4. Jesus began this section in verse 39, characteristically by presenting the traditional Old Testament teaching, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And this is an exact quotation from three Old Testament passages, Exodus Exodus 21, verse 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. And it represents the oldest law in the world, the law of retaliation, technically known as lex talionis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Lex meaning law, talionis meaning retaliation. And the earliest reference to Lex Talionis comes from the Code of Hammurabi in the uh, 2nd century B.C. or 2nd millennium B.C. Far, Far from being savage and harsh legislation, though, it was actually intrinsically merciful. This this hard law was intrinsically merciful because it limited vengeance in groups of people. The typical sort of blood feud knew nothing of equity, right? And we still see this in tribal warfare around the world or in in war between governments. A small infraction of one tribe against another, like you trespass on their land, is met with a beating, which is led then and returned by a homicide, and then you have a whole genocide just from one act of trespass, right? And that happened often. It still happens. Lex Talionis did away with that, on paper at least, right? Today we recognize 
Lex Talionis as foundational to all justice in the world. The whole system of civil and penal and international law is based on the idea of reparation and equity, which has its roots in Lex Talionis. As it exists in the Bible, Lex Talionis was given to the judges of Israel as a basis for adjudication, right? And Deuteronomy 19 makes it so clear. It says, if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord. Now, that's important. Stand in the presence of the Lord. I think many of the problems that we're seeing in our country today is that God has been totally excised from the government. Now, you remember that the separation of church and state was not to protect the state. It was to protect the church. So our founders did believe in the God of the Bible, blah, 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 blah. I'm going off. But anyway, so we are seeing this, that, that, that in this whole system, you stood before the Lord. It's important that you, you see yourself as standing before God. I remember my wife and I were having a, a dispute once, and we, we had a friend with us, and we were having this dispute. And, and finally, my friend said, is it your wife saying you shouldn't do this? Or is it the Lord saying you should do this? And I was like, dang it, dude, why'd you got to bring that up? You know, like that was hard, you know, because then I had to wrestle with Jesus and not just my wife because I can manipulate people, but I can't manipulate God, right? So this is important. So in, in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who were in the office at the time, the judges must make a thorough investigation and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness, as that witness intended to do to the other party. It's, you're going to think twice, you know, in this system. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand foot for foot. And it was needed. It was needed in that system, in that, in that time of time. So individuals, you got to understand, individuals were not permitted to use this law to settle disputes between each other. Only the courts were permitted to do so. It was a communal thing. It was an official thing, right? Moreover, it was not literally carried out by the Jewish legal system because they correctly saw that in some cases to do so would result in an injustice. For instance, a good tooth might be removed for a bad tooth, right? So they assessed damages just as we do in our courts today, and it was important. The Mishnah devotes an entire section entitled the Baba Kama to assessing proper damages in these situations. So we have this traditional Old Testament teaching regarding one, one's response to personal wrong in the principle of exact retribution. And there was nothing intrinsically wrong with that. People look at that and they're like, oh, it's terrible. No, it was not terrible. It actually did a lot of good. Apart from our manipulation of it, obviously, it brought equity and stability to human relationships, right, and to community. And this is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the sight of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. 
my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. There it is. Again, people standing before the Lord. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he urges us in Romans chapter 13 to submit ourselves to the earthly authorities that are over us. Now, it's important that we do not offer a sort of a false dichotomy of law versus grace. Just as the Old Testament affirms the the importance of covenant loyalty as a response to God's redemptive work and grace, so Jesus calls his followers to covenant loyalty in light of the the arrival of God's kingdom and through the lens of the the, the ultimate values of the Torah. And Jesus as its consummate interpreter, demonstrates that the center of the Torah is expressed in love of enemy as well as neighbor. And Matthew provides that the sort of theological grounding of Jesus as God with his people to indicate the relational basis for obedience to God or the covenant basis for obedience to God. So what all that means is that we obey the law of God in heartfelt love of God and others, just like the Ten Commandments have been telling us, that we respond to others as God has responded to us with grace and mercy. You might want to kill the guy that stole my bike or beat him up, but I can't do that. We don't murder even in heart and mind, even in your thoughts. We don't commit adultery even in heart and mind, even in your thoughts. We don't steal even in our heart, of mind, heart and mind, out of gratitude of, a, of, of what we have, or toward, out of gratitude towards a holy God who has you know, loved us, who has shed grace on us, he's given himself for us, taking on the penalty of our sin. We got what we didn't deserve, and we didn't get what we did deserve, right? So in all ways, internally and externally, we emulate him in all that we think and do. Realizing his law is good, and it brings stability to relationships in society. That when we take justice into our own hands, outside of the set authority in community, we do so at the peril of our own soul and at the risk of doing evil to others. We act as a community, right? But does Jesus mean we have to give to every beggar asking for money? I, I lived in Indonesia for almost nine years, and whew, they were everywhere. Now, the dollar was strong, and I had, I had more money than most, so I would pass out a lot of money every day <laughs> when I walked around. But, you know, did I have to do that? I don't know. I don't think so, necessarily. But he does call us to extreme generosity. What we give to people can be different of what's being asked of us if, that, if, what was detrim- if what is being asked is detrimental to that person, right? We are to lead the situation. We are to lead the conversation in these situations in light of the gospel of which, which we pro- profess and want to communicate to people. So what does he mean? Well, he means that the righteous, the people that follow and walk with God, are to give the, to those who are attempting to hurt them through borrowing. 
Luke refers to this kind of persecution when he says, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. We usually want to get it back with interest, don't we? We must realize that Jesus' advice is for specific situations in which a believer is being sort of persecuted. Moreover, Jesus doesn't say how many times one is to lend to a persecutor, right? Nor does he mention the the restraint that love will impose on one's generosity. As Alexander McLaren wisely said, he said, if turning the cheek would make the assaulter more angry, or if yielding the cloak would make the legal robber more greedy, or going the second mile would make the press gang more severe and exacting, resistance becomes a form of love and duty for the sake of the wrongdoer. So what are you giving to them, right? See, we, we, Jesus' advice is not a set of mechanical rules. They are principles for meeting the personal wrongs that come to those who follow him. Is the matter of loaning, in this matter of loaning, the Lord wants his followers to sort of to reject this tight-fisted, penny-pinching attitude which says, you know, this is mine, you know, nobody else can have it, I will never share it. And consider just how superseding this new teaching of Jesus was then and is still today. Under the Old Testament, the believer thought in terms of the lex talionis, right? And the idea of equity. But then Jesus comes and he changes everything. Just drops a bomb on all that. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones ministered in Wales for quite a long time. His wife, Bethan, if I... I think that's her name, Bethan. It tells the story of the sort of this remarkable conversion of a man named Mark McCann. Uh, McCann was the meanest guy in town. He loved to fight. And although he was 60 years old, they said he never lost a fight, right? And when he would go to the fair, he would bring a couple buddies with him because if he, if they, if, if he got into a fight, which he usually did, they had to be there to pull him off the guy or he would probably kill him, right, if they, if they didn't restrain him. And one time his wife uh, fixed his dinner and the dog was in the kitchen and as he walked out of the kitchen, the dog got into his dinner. So he took a bread knife and pinned the dog down and cut its head off. That's how mean this guy was. But then that guy met Jesus, right? He met Jesus. He was barely literate and and as Bethan Lloyd-Jones tells the story, when he first saw the name of Jesus in Welsh in his Bible, he wept and he kissed the name on the pages. He was completely changed from a hateful, vengeful, these are my rights, lex talionis, law of the jungle sort of a guy to a man who was loving and kind. The gospel changes people. Jesus changes lives. The the worst of lies. We we no longer consider it pure, you know, consider it our duty to, to, to get even with people as Christians. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is fine for the court, but it's not, it does, not, does us no good in relationship with others, even our enemies. Thanks to Jesus, we have let go of our legalistic obsession with fairness. How many of you think in terms of fairness? It's a very limiting thought. We're glad that Jesus wasn't fair with us, right? Because if he was... You know, if he was fair with us, we would have gotten what was really coming to us, and that wouldn't have been good. 
As Jesus followers, we give ourselves to the highest welfare of others, even our enemies. We put up with the sins and we put up with the insults of others for the name of Christ and for the sake of others, even those that are casting them on us. Though hurt many times before, we refuse to withdraw into that shell of self, right? To close people off. We don't run from hurt. That is not the courageous Christian life. We may appear weak to the world around us, but we are actually very, very strong in acting this out, for only the most powerful can live like this. But the power is not ours. We all know that. It is Christ in us. It is the Word of God living in us. It's the Spirit of God filling us. Everything comes from Christ. Jesus' sayings are hard. They are, in fact, impossible. That's the point. And I'm glad the Sermon on the Mount is impossible for me to to live out because it forces dependence on Jesus. I have to rely on Him. May the Lord Jesus work in us a surpassing righteousness so that we do not hold on to our rights. So we don't always insist on others being fair with us. So we're willing to be hurt. We're willing to be vulnerable before people. Because then, just as in the ancient world, people will notice that and they will come to Jesus for the same. Because that is beautiful. God is vulnerable with us isn't he? He created us. He put us in the garden. We rebelled against him. That's vulnerability. It isn't that God simply doesn't want us to steal, right? But that we actively work for our neighbor's good. So I hope we can be obedient to this command out of love of God and love of others. And if it happens to us, if we are stolen from, may we react like Jesus would or like Monsignor Bienvenue, if I say his name correctly, right? Let me pray for us. We're going to pray, pray ourselves into confu- uh, communion here. <laughs> pray ourselves into confusion. Sorry. <laughs> oh, Holy Spirit, we thank you. We thank you for your presence here right now. We thank you for the living word that leaps off of that page and stabs us in the heart. And cripples us in a sense. And helps us to see our need. We are forced to our knees before a holy God, the creator of the universe, the one who made everything in it. And we are humbled and we have to confess that it is you that knows how right how, how, what is the right way to live? It is you, the one, you were the one that conv- convicts hearts. And that it's you that is using your people to be the salt and light to the world around us. And when we don't walk with you well, we're not being the best that we can be. So we ask for conviction here. We ask for heartfelt confession on our parts as to what we have done in our lives. How have we robbed other people? How have we been a thief? Even if it is stealing someone's joy. Even if it's standing in the way of their development. Anything like that. 
So that night that you broke bread and you, bro- you, you, you broke it and you gave uh, your words to us saying that this is your body broken for us. Eat it in remembrance of you and you took the, the blood, the wine, and you said this is the blood of my covenant. Drink it in remembrance of me. We do this today to remember what you have done, to, uh, done for us and done in us and how you call us to suffer for others in the same way. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take the time to be confessional this morning. Pray before you come on up. If you come up any time from now to the end of the service, uh, if you've given your life to the Lord, this is something that we practice together. If you haven't, there's no shame in just sitting in your seat and watching it happen. But um, take the bread and dip it and, and take it when you're ready. But be confessional. If you need to confess to the Lord something in this area that or something in another area that you need to unload before you come to the table, by all means do so. We want to come to this in a right way.